This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So last week, if you remember, the title was The Noble Brow. And so, and it had to do with what takes place up here in this region. Uh, the thoughts of a man define his actions. And uh, so the noble brow, a fascinating study that we had last week. And so this one, you're going to notice, is, is fairly similar uh, in concept, very different in how I'm going to present and what I'm going to talk about. Uh, the astounding upside-down pattern of Christ's government. So when I used to teach uh, Christian history, one of the ways that I would describe it is the upside-down kingdom. And so that was the description of how God builds his kingdom is exactly opposite and upside down, at least to the world's mentality. Now, what's funny is to say that God's method is upside down is incorrect. The world is upside down. God is right side up. The problem is it's how our earthly lens perceives it. There is a way that seems right unto man, but it leads to death. There is a way that a man should build a kingdom. There is a way that a man should build this life, this body, this uh, marriage, this family. But it actually leads to disrepair and destruction. The contrast to that is there is a way that is right unto God that leads to life. And that is precisely what I want to explore today. I'm going to show you the contrast between the patterns. Okay, I had a lot of stuff I trimmed out of this message because there's just loads of stuff biblically and historically to show this. So I trimmed it down to uh, a very, as far as I'm concerned, very streamlined, simple message. So what I'm going to show you is the difference between a self-crowned king versus a God-crowned king. Uh, Just the whole notion itself is very fascinating because... Each of us has a propensity to wear a crown in our own audacious way saying, hey, this body belongs to me. This kingdom known as the life of Eric Ludi belongs to me, mine, my precious. And so as a result, we claim for ourselves our own kingdom. We declare it ours and we dictate how it's going to work. And that is actually, by basic definition biblically, sin. What I just described for you is sin. It's the essence of sin. It's self taking a throne in its own life and saying, mine, my body, my life, my time, my resources. Christianity is the exact opposite. It's upside down to that. It starts with literally forsaking all, giving up everything, yielding the throne, saying this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to one that is greater. And when you humble yourself, when you become low, when you bend your knee, humble yourself and be obedient to no matter what the ends may be, then, ironically, you are exalted. You are lifted high to a higher position. And this, of course, is the model of Jesus Christ, a God-crowned king. Christ did not glorify himself. It's, it's hanging out there in Hebrews. The statement uh, is quite pithy if you were to just ponder it. But here we have God Almighty who sits enthroned on high, who has all things under his feet, who is willing to give this up to come and rescue us. 
Now, what we see is a pattern of how a human ought to live. You see, Jesus is God who became like us. And he modeled for us how one like us ought to live. Now, some of you could say, well, he was God. I know, that's what's profound about it. God who came low humbled himself to show us a pattern, to show us a way. And you could say, to make a way, you'd be right. To rescue us, yes, you would be right. But to also set in order things that were cockeyed, things that were out of order, so that we, those who believe in him, could actually be set right and begin to live according to a different pattern, an upside-down pattern, at least in the world's eyes. Jesus Christ, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It can be sort of awkward for us to uh, discuss that statement that Jesus Christ makes us royalty. He, makes, he gives us priestly authority. It's, it's quite profound when you study those two things scripturally and even historically. But to understand that what he has done is he's ennobled us. To go from caterpillar to butterfly, there is a metamorpho, as the Greek word would say, a complete change of who we are. And yet to become that, we do not become that on our own. We do not just say one day, I want to be a king, I want to be a priest. That isn't how a king and a priest in the kingdom of heaven is established. And so as a result, the reason I named this message thinking like a king, I could say thinking like a heavenly king, thinking like a true king, thinking like Jesus Christ. Napoleon Bonaparte. So what you're going to see is I'm going to give a contrast between two different types of kingmaking. Napoleon, who many of you know if you've studied history at all, uh, is a fascinating character to study. I'll give you a, at least a brief description of him. A five foot two tall and five foot two inch tall. The reason I emphasize that is because he's going to be symbolic of something in our life too. He's a little varmint. He's a little, little guy. He has no business being the leader of this nation. He's five foot two tall, French military leader, famous for his shrewdness and ambition, who seized political power in his country in 1799 and then went on to become emperor of France. The reason he became emperor is because he thought the word king and the title of king was too small for him. Okay, now the guy's five foot two, but the, the title king is too small for him. Okay, this is, every single one of us has a little Napoleon Bonaparte inside of us who is desiring to seize greatness, to claim territory. And so as a result, this guy is rather amazing in his symbolism. So there's my picture of Napoleon. If you've never seen him before, it's just a classic uh, representation of him. The Upside Down Kingdom. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. By the way, that is contrary to the way you naturally think. If you're going to be great, you don't seek a servant position. I want you to just ponder that for a second. The way we are trained in North America to be great is not this way. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, who's talking? The king of all kings. The one who is the ultimate authority and power over all who is the greatest. And he's given you the secret pattern of how to live to behave as kings and priests in his kingdom. You want to have influence. You want to do this right. Hey, he's laying out a pattern for us. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
So you choose to be last of all and servant of all. How many of us would ever deliberately choose to be last? To be the servant of everyone else? Doesn't make any sense. How's that going to make you great? Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Now these are all famous Jesus sayings. Okay, I'm not shocking any of you with these sayings. However, I'm bringing them into high concentration. So that we can begin to see a thinking pattern. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The secret key to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is giving up your life. Forsaking your life. You see, we hold on to this life as very precious. And I can understand why it is very precious. However, the secret to this life, if you hold on to it and say, I want to live my life the way I want it. I want to be who I want to become. I want to have things that I crave. You lose it all. However, if you take this one life that you have on planet earth and you give it up and you give it to Jesus and say, you take it, you do with it whatever you want without strings attached, without holding on with a grip. You know, like you give something to to Jesus and then he starts taking it. You're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't expect you to actually take that. You see, we look at it more theoretically. It's like, oh, I give it all. We sing songs about it. I surrender all. Oh, really? The moment he starts asking for it, we start wrestling for it. I mean, you're not actually supposed to take it. <laughs> the plea of the immature Christian. So it's interesting to look at Abraham because he's such a, a picture of mighty faith. To actually recognize that he had his immature season as well. In fact, he made a lot of mistakes. And one of the classic mistakes is receiving the clear promise of God that he would have a son, but then getting impatient. And as a result, taking things into his own hands. Very similar to us. You've been told that you will be a king and a priest in his kingdom. So you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to be a king. And so we rise up in our own strength, in our own machinations, to become something that only God can make us. It's the same thing that uh, Abraham did. And this is his famous line. So I'm not going to go into detail in the story of how he did this, other than the fact that he tried to get a son in his own strength, in his own way. And so he hung out with uh, the maidservant of Sarah known as Hagar and had a son. His name was Ishmael. And Ishmael is the classic illustration of self-production. This is what you can do in your own strength. He's not a bad character, right? I mean, I'm sure he was strong guy. However, God could not bless it. It wasn't the answer to God's promise. Hey, Abraham, this isn't right. I can't bless Ishmael. And so this is what Abraham and many of us do. This is our quote. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. How about my self-effort you can bless? God, why can't you bless the great ideas I have, the great stuff that I've produced? It can't stand before him. The doctrine of modern American Christianity, and by the way, this seeps in all over the place. Whether or not anyone ever says it outright, it's just there. I must increase that Christ would increase. There's entire books written about this idea of gaining a key position in culture so that you can influence it for Christianity. I must increase. Somehow I must get into positions of power so then I can drop hints of the gospel. And see, this is the idea. It's blending worldly thinking, 
the worldly way a king is made into the way that we function in our Christianity is just exactly wrong. You see, this isn't what Scripture teaches, even though it sounds so right. Yeah, if I were to increase in my stature, in my wealth, in my positions of power, then, and you could fill in the blanks, just think of what we could do if all of us were, I mean, this was the Senate and the House of Representatives right here. I mean, we could make laws. I mean, we could do some damage. So if all of us just set out to do that one thing, boy, we could change the world. It isn't God's pattern. And I'm not saying it's bad for one of you to be a senator. I'm just saying it's wrong for us to think that if we gain position, then we change the world. That's not exactly how God does it. So here's uh, one of the most famous authors of our day. And I'll just show you how those thoughts have crept in. Living from your glory is the only loving thing to do. This is from three of his different books. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a student, by the way, of, of all that is wrong with this author. Let people feel the weight of who you are and let them deal with it. Take the throne. Be what he meant you to be. I don't know if you examine that, if you see anything wrong. However, it's exactly opposite the scriptural pattern. Sorry for those of you that was your favorite author. I'm just saying this has crept into modern Christianity at such an in-depth level that most of us don't see it anymore. But it's exactly polar opposite the kingdom of heaven. The danger of self-exalting Christian living. It's built upon a faulty premise. He, Jesus, must increase. But I must decrease. John the Baptist, an incredible symbol of one who prepares a way for Jesus to be seen. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Who do you think you are in this whole thing? In other words, you are the friend of the bridegroom to lead others to see him. This is what the role of the friend is. I can of my own self do nothing. I mean, that's a profound statement. To actually begin to absorb that into the way we function as humans, to recognize that in and of ourselves, without divine intervention, known as the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are unable to do that which God has called us to do. And so as a result, at the most basic level, I just gave you two foundational concepts. He must increase, and I must decrease. In and of myself, I can't do it. Therefore, if it's going to be done, I need help. To acknowledge that at the very beginning is difficult. And that's where this throne comes in. If I think I can do it, hey, I'll just take the throne. I'm in charge here. I can pull this off. However, when we start with the premise that he's right and we're wrong, I bend my knee and I say, you take what is rightfully yours. You rule this life. You rule this body. You rule my resources. You rule my time, my gifts and abilities. What you desire, you get I am merely your servant. I'm a friend to the bridegroom, to the true hero of this life. So I'm going to give you a contrast. This is, it has a humor value to it. It really does. When you picture this guy being 5'2". Now, there's all sorts of argumentation. I'm sure certain French people do not like us calling him 5'2". They're like, I think he was taller than that. And so supposedly they, uh, they measured his, his bones and he came out to like 5'2". That's where they came from. But there's still argument about it. And... So I still like measuring him at five foot two because it really makes my point uh, even better. The coronation of Napoleon, the pomp and circumstance of self-crowning arrogance. So this is a, a quote from Napoleon. 
To be a king is to inherit old ideas and genealogy. I don't want to descend from anyone. The title of emperor is greater. Okay, we have problems here, guys. This is a guy who wants a throne, who wants to be the most important. You see, when you have this ruling inside of your life, it destroys you. The pageantry of Napoleon, Sunday, December 2nd, 1804. So this is oftentimes called the coronation of Napoleon or the pageantry of Napoleon. This is the day that he received the crown. And you could just sort of see him in his little five foot two height scheming all the details of this to make it look as amazing as it could. And there's all sorts of things, as you'll even see in this uh, thing about it. This is uh, extremely fascinating. Napoleon woke at 8 a.m. to the sound of a cannonade. He left, and sound of a cannonade, period. He left the Tuileries at 11 a.m. in a white velvet vest with gold embroidery and diamond buttons, crimson velvet tunic and short crimson coat with satin lining. He wore a wreath of laurel. The number of onlookers as estimated by Wary was between four and 5,000, many of whom had held their places all night through intermittent showers that cleared in the morning. Napoleon's carriage was drawn by eight bay horses. An unmanned balloon ablaze with 3,000 lights in an imperial crown pattern was launched from the front of Notre Dame during the celebration. Before entering the Notre Dame Cathedral, Napoleon was vested in a long white satin tunic embroidered in gold thread. During the coronation, he was formally clothed in a heavy coronation mantle made from crimson velvet lined with ermine. The velvet was covered with embroidered golden bees drawn from the golden bees among the regalia that had been discovered in the Merovingian tomb of Kilderic I, a symbol that overleapt and outgloried even Charlemagne. The mantle weighed at least 80 pounds and was supported by four dignitaries. The coronation proper began with the signing, singing of the hymn Veni Creator Spiritus, I'm trying to sound Latin, followed by the versicle, Lord, send forth your spirit in response and renew the face of the earth and the collect for the feast of Pentecost, God who has taught the hearts of your faithful by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. See, everything about this sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? After this, the prayer, Almighty everlasting God, the creator of all, during the litany of the saints, the emperor remained seated, only kneeling for special petitions. The emperor was anointed on his head and on both hands with chrism, with the prayer, God, the Son of God. Because the traditional royal crown had been destroyed during the French Revolution, the so-called crown of Napoleon, made to look medieval and called the crown of Charlemagne for the occasion, was waiting on the altar. Listen to this moment. I read all this for this. At the moment of the crowning, Napoleon unexpectedly turned and forestalling the Pope, crowned himself. (laughs) Five foot two. The guy literally, hey, sit down, Pope. (laughs) Sticks the crown on his own head. There's a, a painting of it. Isn't that good? Or a sketch of it. Okay, guys, I know some of you are very impressed with that. But I'm going to show you the way a real king is made. A study in the coronation of Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you. Think like a king, people, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was not a criminal act to be equal with God, guys. He knew he was, he was God. However, he humbled himself. 
Though God, he made himself of no reputation. Though God, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Though God, he was made in the likeness of men. Though God, he humbled himself. Though God, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God has highly exalted him and given him the preeminence. Following the leader. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So let's ruminate on that. I'm going to read it again. I want you to ponder this. You see, we naturally gravitate towards the Napoleon pattern. We naturally surround ourselves with pomp and circumstance. Most of us don't have the resources to make it look like that. However, we want people to think highly of us. So we want to present ourselves in such a way which will bring about applause. We do not want to deliberately choose the path of Jesus Christ, the path of suffering. Why would any of us wake up in the morning and choose that? You see, we have a natural disposition, and that is to be self-crowning, to be self-esteeming, to be self-making. We want others to appreciate us. We want to make a mark in this world. And yet Jesus says, look, I set for you a pattern. It's not the pattern of this world. There's a way that seems right to this world, but it is not my way. There is a way that is right in my kingdom. I want to do something with your life, but you have to give up your life in order to find it. Would you relinquish your hold on that crown? Set it down and give it to me. Let me wear the crown that you so esteem, and you will find that I will make you great. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. The Greek word is protuyo, which translates as preeminence, the first position. To be the first, first place. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that in all things he might have the first place. So for Jesus, in our life, many of us are caught red-handed with our hand on the crown, and we're caught red-handed putting Jesus in second place with us in first place. At least he's in a place. I mean, most people out there don't even acknowledge him, accept him into their life, but... If he's going to come into your life, I mean, you you don't have to, like, let him displace you and let him have everything. There's other ways to do this. As John Eldridge says, take the throne. Let the world feel who you are. That's the exact opposite of Christianity. Let him have the throne. Let this world feel the weight of who he is. That's Christianity. The world doesn't need to see me. They need to see Jesus. How is the Pertullio gained. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So how did he gain his exalted position? He set a pattern. He showed us how it works. How do you become great in the kingdom of heaven? You guys actually know the answer to that. It's funny because most of us are so concerned to becoming great in the kingdom of this earth that we fail to remember that we are only but a breath here on this earth. How do you become great in the kingdom of heaven should be what reverberates through our soul. That's what we're living for. Not to be great here in this world's eyes. To be great in that kingdom. The kingdom that is eternal. The kingdom that is forever. So here's our pattern. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You humble yourself, and you will find 
You know, as it talked about the chrism, the anointing oil that was poured on uh, Napoleon. You want the true chrism? You want the Holy Spirit? You want the grace of God? Humble yourself. And you'll find that kingly anointing will come upon your life. The last shall be first and the first last. Which means, if we actually think this through, if we agree with Scripture, the last place in any circumstance, in any setting, is actually the first place. So in every room you walk into, to seek the low place, to seek the last place. I know, it doesn't sound American, does it? It's not how we are wired to function, but that's how the kingdom of heaven works. Everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. The pertuyo, or that first place, or that exalted place, is gained in the lowest place. It's the upside down kingdom. You want to function according to the realities of another realm. You have to realize that realm doesn't function like this one. If you live for this realm and you pull a Napoleon, you will be destroyed. But if you live for another realm and you humble yourself, you will find great strength in the next kingdom. Luke 14. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. I don't know if you understand what it's like if you have a different choice of tables when you walk into a restaurant. How many of you are going to choose the worst table? I mean, it's just counterintuitive. There isn't anything in this that is normal to us. So he noted how they chose the best places. Uh, it sounds like us. Saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you in, in him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The five royal steps to the throne. So we, we studied the pageantry of Napoleon, and most of us know the pageantry of Jesus Christ. We know the coronation of Jesus Christ. We've studied it our entire lives, but never recognized that it is truly the crowning of a king, that it is the ultimate picture of how a king is made, how one is exalted to the highest place. We're literally watching it, but it doesn't look attractive to our vision. So I'm going to give you the five royal steps to the throne. Gethsemane, the low place of soul anguish, the nine tales of torture, the low place of physical suffering, the walk of the criminal, the low place of false accusation and abuse, the nails of spectacle, the low place of public ridicule, the spear that opens the belly, the low place of death. Well, how many of you want to follow that guy? Because when he says, pick up your cross, and follow me. What do you think he's referring to? He's saying, hey, I want to take you into my kingdom. I want to make you kings and priests in a far greater realm. Are you willing to give up your life as you now know it? Jesus bravely walked the red carpet of crucifixion, the royal path of heavenly coronation, strewn with happy petals of righteous suffering and the joyous trumpet sounds of soul anguish. His pain was the chrism, his wounds the ermine robe, the thorns of mockery his crown, the nails of earthly trial his cannonade and benediction, and the spear in his side the standing ovation of the heavenly host. 
The six baffling secrets of Jesus' coronation. Okay, see if you can swallow these things. These are all facts. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-exaltation. Self-exaltation is the surest route away from God. You do not gain more of God through self-exaltation. You gain none of God that way. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-exaltation. He gained it through purposeful smallness. We must first accept the call to smallness, anonymity, nothingness in the church's eyes, idiocy in the world's eyes, and wastefulness in our families and friends' eyes. Wow. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-effort. He gained it through total consecration. We must accept the marks of blood upon our right ear, right thumb, and right big toe. That's a symbol of consecration in the Old Testament for the priests. If you were being consecrated to do the work of the temple, you had to be set apart for that work. And a ram was killed, and they took the blood. The high priest would take the blood of the lamb, the ram, smear it on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. That's strange. Right ear. This is where you hear obedience. God tells you what to do. And you have an ear already set apart from you. Say, yes, Lord. Thumb, control. Thumb of right hand. Control, control. You give up all control of your life. You want to truly be a priest in the house of God? You give up that right thumb. Right big toe. It's wherever you go in life. That's what leads. And so as a result, you say, wherever I go, I go for you and for your glory. So that's how Jesus did it. We must submit our mind unto Christ's mind. We must submit our mouth to only speak that which, is Christ, which Christ is speaking. We must submit our body to only do that which Christ is doing. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-marketing. He gained it through the unqualified acceptance of the Father's terms. It's his agenda, not ours. In his timing, not ours. It's his decision how he spends our body and our blood and blood, not ours. It's his reputation that matters, not ours. It's his glory, not ours. Oh, and it's now his life and his body, not ours. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-promotion. He gained it through silence. Of all things, silence. Talk about the opposite of self-promotion. He's falsely accused hanging on a cross and he's silent? This is an opportunity, Jesus. Let him know a few things. Show him how wise you are. He is silent as a lamb unto slaughter. Not speaking our own thoughts, philosophies, and wisdom, but bound to speak nothing but that which he speaks. Not doing anything that he isn't doing. Silencing all personal talent and powers of human influence and allowing him to demonstrate and exert his great majesty. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-pampering. He gained it through suffering. Can you think of anything more opposite than self-pampering? Suffering. It's the point of the spear that draws out the stuff of God inside a man. It's the nails that keep him pinned to the purposes of God and call the demonstration of love forth. It's the agony that pulls up the grace of God for the thirsty to come and drink. Jesus did not gain preeminence through self-solution. He gained it through waiting, not moving forward unless he moves forward, God moves forward. Always only in his time and not in ours, knowing God is never in a hurry, but he is always at work. Refusing Hagar as God's solution, solution in with, and with joyful confidence. The lost corridor of greatness. The path of shame and spitting. So there is a pathway. We're going to call it the corridor. And it's a corridor of shame and spitting. If you walk down this corridor, there's all sorts of people that hurl uh, spittle at you. That you know, throw mockeries and uh, all sorts of harmful statements against you as you walk down this corridor. On the other side of this corridor is strength, greatness, grace. 
establishment in the kingdom of heaven. This side is death. See, most of us don't want to walk this narrow way. We don't want to go down this corridor because of all the harassment along the way. I don't want to be considered lowly. I don't want to be mocked and ridiculed. And as a result, we stay where we are, where we are instead of heading to where he is. So this is Isaiah 50. At my rebuke, I dry up the sea, says God. I make the rivers a wilderness. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. We're talking about the almighty God here. At his rebuke, he can dry up a sea. And of course, we could go on and show you all sorts of things that this God can do. But look at this. The reason I point this out is three short verses later, this God who can dry up a sea with his rebuke, listen to what it says. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Okay, now God Almighty is willing to come and walk that narrow corridor for us. And then he beckons us to follow him. We are little five foot two varmints that have the privilege of participating in his grand kingdom. And yet most of us think we're too good to walk that narrow channel. You see, even the God who can dry up the seas with his rebuke gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those that plucked out his beard. And he hid not his face from shame and spitting. Listen to what Spurgeon says about it. What a descent from the omnipotence which veils the heavens with clouds to the gracious condescension which does not veil its own face but permits it to be spat upon. The spittle-smeared cheek of the Almighty... A bewildering meditation of highness become lowness. Jesus has become low so that he could lift us high. But for us to be lifted high by the one who was high and became low, we need to become low to be lifted high. In other words, he is the channel through which we will gain strength. The channel through which we will receive grace. The channel through which we enter into the throne room of grace. How do you get there? You must give up your life. You must become the servant of all. You must become like a little child. You must become low. And as long as we fight that, we fight the kingdom of heaven and the pattern of it. Okay, so this is an incredible meditation, guys. My God has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, meted out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. To him the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are as counted as the small dust of the balance. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. See a contrast there? When he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all. The creator of the heavens and the earth, God of all the kingdoms of this earth. He can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. He can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. He was a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that saw him laughed at him. Laughed him to scorn and they shot out the lip. They shook their head. 
He is the mighty God, the everlasting God, over all God blessed forever, the God of the whole earth, and his throne is forever and ever. He is the Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come, the creator of all things, the upholder of all things, the father of eternity, the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. They gaped upon him. He was poured out like water and all his bones were out of joint. His heart was like wax. It melted in the midst of his bowels. His strength was dried up like a pot shirt and his tongue cleaved to his jaws. They pierced his hands and his feet. They parted his garments among them and cast lots upon his vesture. He is the rock of ages, the head of every man, the head of all principality and power, Lord of lords, Lord of the dead and living, Lord of all, Lord over all. He is the prince of princes, the prince of the kings of the earth. He that filleth all in all, the king of kings, the righteous judge, the king of saints, king of nations, king over all the earth, the king of glory, crowned with many crowns, and he sitteth king forever. He made sackcloth his garment, and he was the song of the drunkards. Reproach broke his heart, and he was full of heaviness. They smote the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Before him all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, he was God. When the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against him, he shall laugh and shall hold them in derision. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He is bound by nothing but his own nature and his own law. He is not limited in power nor governed in action by the will or the pleasure of any angel, demon, or man. But rather he is limited and governed only by the dictums and restraints of his loving prerogative to gain for himself a peculiar people. To establish his kingdom in this earth and to shed abroad his glory unto the heathen. They laughed him to scorn. They spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. In the not so distant future when he will return to bring terrible judgment to nations and his feet shall touch down on Mount Olivet... And see it divide asunder. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And all will behold the Ancient of Days, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose voice is as the sound of many waters, and whose countenance is as the sun shining in all its strength. They will see the fiery stream issuing forth from before him, the thousand thousands ministering unto him, and the ten thousand times ten thousand that stand before him at the judgment. And all will behold the one at whose feet all crowns will be cast. For he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For he has created all things. And for his pleasure they are and were created. They smote him on the head with a reed. And did spit upon him. And bowing their knees worshipped him. They that passed by reviled him wagging their heads. So in concert with the noble King David I pronounce. Thine O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. How does one become great in the kingdom of heaven? They follow Jesus. Now, I just enunciated for you how Jesus walked, how his coronation took place. How he became the king of all kings, capital K, king. Priest, high priest of the heavens. You see, we are small K kings 
and small p priests in the kingdom to come. But the way that we are established in our position eternally is by entering into his position in lowliness. You see, we are to be clothed in Christ, which doesn't mean clothed clothed in his glory, but also clothed in his humiliation, clothed in his sufferings, clothed in his difficulties. There isn't a natural attractiveness that we see in any of these things. But when I see Jesus, I see something very attractive. When I see a suffering Savior on my behalf, I see something that is riveting to my soul. When I see one who is willing to die and bleed for me, I say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? He says, humble yourself. Come unto me and be saved. Clothe yourself in my life. Walk the narrow way that I have set before you. It is a way of difficulty. It is a path of suffering. It is marked with spittle and shame. But in the kingdom of heaven, it is a royal path. And those who walk it receive crowns and find position in a forever kingdom. So the man standing before you, though I see this paradox before me of what looks upside down to my natural man, there is a part of me that esteems this odd pathway this pathway of difficulty and this pathway of suffering. And though I still have a part of me that is five foot two and still yearns to have an easier life, to have a life that is esteemed by the world around me, that desires comforts and ease, though that exists, I decline it daily. I deny it daily and I pick up my cross daily. And I say, Lord Jesus, I choose this path And I desire to walk this path, even though it is a harder way, even though it is a way of narrowness, difficulty, and compression, because I choose you over that earthly crown. I choose you over any earthly comforts. I choose you over any earthly applause. I choose Jesus. If that's what comes with knowing Jesus, being found in Jesus, and sharing my life eternally with Jesus, I accept it. This is the life that he has laid out for us in Scripture. And even though modern American Christianity has attempted to rearrange the truth, to make it something that allows you to maintain selfishness, at the same time follow Jesus, I must tell you as a pastor that there is only one way into the kingdom of heaven. And it's down that narrow corridor of shame and spitting. You humble yourself, you give up your life, and you find it. You hold on to your life, you hold on to your way of doing things, you lose it. So though we may be of highest birth, of the most royal pedigree, of the finest education, of the greatest talent, of the wealthiest class, I don't know how many of of us that fits, and have been groomed for earthly greatness... We are to follow Jesus and make ourselves of no reputation and take upon ourselves the form of a servant, humble ourselves and become obedient unto death, even the most horrible, cruel, humiliating, and shameful death of a cross. Who are we following? Who are we clothed in? Are we better than that T 
teacher of ours, we're willing to humble ourselves and follow him, no matter where it leads. The coronation of the saints, the great spittle-smearing celebration. We must bravely walk the red carpet of Christ's sufferings, the royal path of heavenly coronation, strewn with happy petals of righteous suffering and the joyous trumpet sounds of sweet praises for the great victor. Our pain is the chrism, our wounds are our ermine robe. The thorns of mockery are crowned, the nails of earthly trial are candidate in benediction, and the spear in our side, the standing ovation of the heavenly dignitaries. Could you imagine if we had those glasses on when we lived our life? I know because I'm acquainted with many of your trials in here and many of your sorrows and sufferings. I know that many of you in here are carrying very difficult weights in your life. I want to freshly remind you that this is our coronation. This is our privileged walk down the red carpet into the heavenly realms. Let's bear it up well, not with our head hanging low, but truly as royal ones that are walking a path with joy, with expectation, that though the difficulties attend us and though the spittle does land upon our cheek, and for those of us that can grow a beard, our beard is ripped out. One of these days I may try and shock some of you by growing a beard. The low place. It's not just a seat at a table. So most of us, we think, well, if there was a long table, banquet table with some low spots, because that's not the way we work in, in America. We don't have long banquet tables with like low seats and then high seats. So as a result, we're like, yeah, I don't get this. It doesn't really relate to my world. It's not just a seat at a table. In every situation we come into, there is a position of a servant. There is a position, there's a mindset of lowness. Because in various things, you can enter a situation with a mindset of highness. And as a result, you live as if you're higher than other people around you. As opposed to entering the situation literally with the mindset that everyone in the room is royal and you are their servant. It's easier said than done. However, there's your mentality. And it is a gift of grace that God wants to give us. He says, you really want to walk this way? You want to live this way? I'll begin to teach you. I'll train you. You see, I'll live inside of you and I'll show you in every situation when to bend that knee, where that low seat is. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Taking the lowest place, the low place in our soul and bodies. To not think highly of ourselves, but to think highly of him. To not think highly of our own ideas, but to think highly of his word. To not think highly of ourselves over other people around us, but to think highly of them and what God desires to do in them. It does not mean to negate the fact that God loves you and to be some kind of guy that says, oh, I stink, I'm horrible. It just means to consider others more important than yourself. Taking the low place in our families. To actually, in our families, no matter if we're the parents or we're the child, doesn't matter which role we have, to enter it as a servant and to recognize that this is our practice ground. Take a low position. Don't presume anything. Taking the low place in our marriages, taking the low place in our friendships, taking the low place in our work situations, taking the low place in our churches, taking the low place in our ministries, taking the low place in our obedience, taking the low place in our futures. Spurning the coronation of Napoleon. Don't let the despicable little five foot two inch Napoleon inside you 
get his grubby hands on the crown. He's certainly not about to stick it where it rightfully belongs. That little varmint has an agenda that goes directly against Jesus Christ. It's called the flesh. You see, there is a self-interest that you have. You are born with it. You are born with a deep care for your own gain, for your own state and situation. It is not to be shocking to any of us that every single other person in the room shares the same problem. It is our condition. And we can just sort of look at each other and go, you have it too, huh? Hey, this is sort of fun. That doesn't mean we excuse it. We've been given a way out. The work of Jesus Christ rescues us from this throne that we sit on. Saying, mine, my life, leave me alone. I don't want anything to disturb my comforts. I can't help but disturb your comfort. Because I know something. And that is if you remain in that seat, you die. But if you give up that seat to the rightful owner of it, the possessor of it, the one who purchased it with his very blood to rescue you, his name is Jesus Christ, then you live. And so when we allow Jesus his rightful place, we find the life that we were built for. And that's why we crave it. There is a deep craving just as much as we naturally are varmints, craving power and authority, we also have instinctively in us this desire for something more. This desire for that heavenly kingdom, this desire for peace and joy and love and life. And yet we try and go after that the wrong way. It's as if you want it. I need you to give up that life first. That life that you're holding on to. You know what life I'm talking about. It's you. It's the way you want things. If every single one of us, because I know this is this is almost like we could call a classic message here at Ellerslie. It's not new, and yet I want you to treat it as new. I don't want you to treat it like oh, I heard it before. Even for me, as I'm speaking this, I want to be changed by this reality, and I want to have a fresh alertness and clarity in my spiritual life towards it. I want to think like the king of all kings. I don't want to think like just a mere human. I want to think with the mind of Christ. We've been given something, guys. Let's use it. Let's exercise it. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.